Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International and author of a number of books on training, innovative training methods used throughout the world. Back into KSI huddle, so let's go with the questions. Got, uh, I guess, a question on the endurance training. We were talking a second ago about uh, a quote you gave me for basketball training way back in the day about how basketball is what, When was that? What year was that? And it had to be 98, 99. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I was writing an article on basketball I didn't know anything about. So you being the smartest guy I knew contacted you. And you, uh, your quote was basically because basketball is a unique sport that you can play, you know, practice at or near game speed that you would have to minimize the endurance, other endurance training you were doing because you wouldn't want to take away from, from that. So I guess uh, kind of a statement slash question, I assume that's still your, your basic philosophy. That's one of the things that I run into with like mountain biking, for example, is that, you know, I look at riding on the trail is the most specific form of endurance training that you can do, but you have this paradigm of like, well, I have to do all of this other endurance training off of the bike to support mm-hmm. my riding on the bike, and it ends up, they become so tired they can't perform well on the bike, and so I guess, uh, you know, is, is that still your thought for sports that are able to be practiced at or near, you know, game speed? Definitely, definitely. And if you divide all sports into two categories, and, and this is a bit simplistic, those that can be rehearsed and those that can't be rehearsed. Uh, basketball is one of my favourite sports that can be rehearsed. If you're in, in an impact sport, like you, you're not going to go out and um, like gridiron, American football, mm-hmm. you know, you're really not going to be able to do that exactly in every training session. You're not going to be able to go out and, you know, if you're a combat fighter, you're not going to be able to go, and, you know, go hard, go bashing every single session. So I love the sports that you can, you can rehearse. And therefore, in those sports, using my specificity continuum, there is very little room for non-specific endurance training. Because the challenge with non-specific endurance training is that the higher you get up in your athletic ability, the less it transfers. And then all you're doing is developing non-specific qualities, which, which you've got to detrain from to adapt to the specific ones if you've got energy, energy left to do that. And then you've got a training volume issue. So generally speaking, I discourage non-specific endurance training full stop, generally speaking. And obviously in a sport where you can rehearse, then it's very, very much so. So yeah, that's still consistent with that, with that approach. What people, people treat the human body literally as a machine, and it's not a machine. We have, we have a relatively limited amount of human energy, both in a day, and in a, in a competitive career as well as in a life. And the earlier we drain that human energy, the earlier the athlete retires or, or gets injured or quits. That comes right down to the, to the, the, the more of a micro nature that if you go intensely for, with the human body, your, your, your ability to trade at a high level intensity is somewhere between six and ten weeks, generally speaking. And when you hit that limit, you basically you know, crash physically and you don't know how to get back out of it. So that if, you're, if, if you've got a training block of high intensity longer than that, or if your sport is longer than that, and many sports are, many seasons are longer than that, then you've got to come up with strategies to manage that, either by avoiding that level of intensity or by being selective when you go there. And there's a phenomenon um, that I've been... I have to keep a straight face on here. It's called, it's called the top-up, the fitness top-up. I'm going to tell you a story. There is a, a World Cup event, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name the sport, but there's a World Cup event where the national team 
had made it to the final. And in the team room, after the last game that qualified them, the strength and distance coach, to use an American term, had suggested to the team and to the, to the management that they needed to do a fitness top-up. That was the beginning of the end of that coach's, that strength and conditioning coach's career with that team because fortunately the majority of the team were being trained by me throughout their career. And they said, um, no, it's not going to happen. So whatever credibility that person had was totally shot after that. Because the last thing they needed to do in the last seven days before a World Cup event was to do more non-specific fitness training. So it's pretty common. Um, I feel sorry for the athletes either forced to do that or who bought into that paradigm. I'm not suggesting there isn't a time and a place for it, but you have to be very careful on that. Yeah, I mean, even even then, within the the, the the practice, you would want it. You would be looking for quality over quantity. So Definitely. you know, you wouldn't want to be just playing your sport four or five days in a row and calling that training. You would there would still need to be some energy management even within the context. But basketball, this is this is a challenge because you can do it. Guess what? Right. Because you can train at game specificity, guess what they do? They, play they, they train every single day, multiple times a day, game specificity, and, and then they go home and scrimmage. Because the basketballer can't help themselves. They just want to scrimmage. They want to play pickup. So, you know, it's, I haven't met a basketball team that's been undertrained. I know a hell of a lot of them that are overtrained. It's a real danger. And while we're on that topic, I want to open up the. If I was to divide training intensities in, in terms of specific game training or, or sport training into two, I do low-level training for skill development, high-level training for game ad- adaptation, but not game ad- adaptation from a, from a technical point of view, because that will come naturally. Game adaptation from a conditioning perspective or rehearsal of skill at that speed sort of thing. There's just not enough low-intensity training for in the, in the development years. So everything's done at high intensity. The quality of the execution is low. Make sense? Yeah. You, you actually need to treat every skill, every technical execution as a genuine skill, and skill needs to be executed slowly at first, no matter how fast it's done at the end. And there's this great, there's this, there's this overriding belief that it has to be done at game pace. Well, you don't develop a new skill at game pace. You have to actually develop a new skill at a pace where the quality of the execution is high enough, and then you add the pressure. The pressure might be opponent, it might be fatigue, it might be all these other things, but it's really, it's a long way off. Most of the training I do is low intensity with a little bit of high intensity training. And there aren't too many coaches that talk about this. Charlie Francis was very good at this management and talked about it a lot. But there aren't many because most coaches just go balls to the wall every time and they're already overtraining in volume anyway and they're overtraining in intensity. Yeah. I was going to say that the, the, that the, the, that's the very logic that's used for the, the overabundance of speed drills. Oh, yes. So when we were talking about speed drills and, and actually read speed trap on your recommendation and as a track coach I coach short sprints, hurdles and relays and the, the I, you know I, I see this over dependence upon drills that, that don't have a point you know they're drills for drills sake they're drills for the sake of the coach's employment or the trainer's employment and, most, you know, and someone's value as a coach is simply in how many drills they know and I'm, t- I'm telling you, on my, on my specificity continuum, speed is the second most specific need. So it's one step down from endurance. If you, if you don't have a degree of specificity in your speed train, you may as well forget about it. Right. Don't do it. It's a skill. It's an acquired skill. It's a acquired skill. Exactly. So, so 
I guess the question is, how do you, when approaching when approaching a given athlete, who you recognize their need for technical improvement, also energy improvement. I call, I call it energy improvement because I don't like the word endurance when I'm talking to my sprinters because they. And, just and the word energy systems. Down. Is, is, is a Canadian word that they've picked out from the many immigrants coming across from the Eastern European training program. Right, and so, so they need speed endurance, and I categorize that and such, but um, which one do you prioritize? Okay, I'm going to give you a few points here. First of all, you can't endure something you don't have. Right. So it's quite funny people doing, you know, we need to improve our endurance in this. Well, you don't have anything in the first place. <laughs> and if it's so low anyway, and then you go and do endurance of it, what does it do? It just gets lower. Your training so far away from game pace or, or race pace, it's ridiculous. So the, I take, as you would imagine, um, you might have read my writing about the concept of reverse periodization, etc. Where and I always credit Charlie Francis for his um, his, his common ground with this and his, his practical application. I developed the, 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 the uh, provided the term of reverse periodization, where we, we say, okay, let's get that quality up high, and then let's find a way to endure that quality. But I also don't want to leave this discussion without talking about the word endurance or fitness. Because for me, it is not about your fitness in sport. It is about your efficiency in sport. It's not fitness. It is efficiency. I can have the fittest aerobic system on the planet and have really crappy technique or really poor flexibility, and I don't execute efficiently. Efficiency in sport is, is mistaken for fitness. So the team that's got the better culture, that's got the better teamwork, that's got the better skill execution, they suddenly look the fitter team. So I think fitness is overrated in that perspective. Now, how many areas contribute to efficiency in sport? I mean, we could be talk all day, couldn't we? Yeah. There are so many areas of efficiency. Well, guess what? If you improved each of those areas by 1%, how much fitter would you look? Substantially. Substantially, exactly. So what I see people doing is, okay, I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in an energy system sport, so guess what, I'm going to go and do some more energy system training. You know how to talk about flogging a dead horse? Is that a word here? Is that just sure, kind of flogging the dead horse? Beating the dead horse. That's, it, that's all it is. I mean, if you're already doing that stuff, why go and do more of it? Do something that, that you don't get. And, and if you understand my concepts of, of dry land training, the purpose of non-specific training, which is everything off the court or everything off the, off the field, everything... None of it's specific. It's, it's, it's all relative, you know, degrees of specificity. The purpose of non-specific is to provide a stimulus that you don't get by playing the game. So don't even look to try and rehearse it. Find out something that will transfer, that will change you, but at a low energy cost, that's not draining your energy systems, not competing with your sport adaptation. There are so many ways to make an athlete better, but people just keep on banging the same old path. So there's a lot there. Um, but I, I improve uh, you know, what you're talking about very quickly. Very quickly and not in the way that people expect and definitely at the energy level is far. Well, the energy cost is incredibly low. Uh, I'll give you another real world example. I, I had a renegade group that I did speed training with and the team that we were involved in um, averaged 400 metres in the off season in their, in their speed and fitness training. So when we come back into, um, into the team pre-season training, the, the boys that stayed with the conventional program would tease my boys about how they were going to get warped. 
that you're just going to die in the ass. Because we're going to go out there, we're going to do 400, you're going to die in the ass. Now, my boys hadn't run more than 40 metres. And, 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 and they were rolling on the floor about that. Like, there was laughter. It was like, it was so funny. How this place is going to die. Well, that was the end of the career of the boys who stayed and did the, did the conventional stuff. They were so slow, they, they were made to look so slow and so unfit that they, they basically, some of them ended their career. Because the athletes I work with destroyed them in, in every distance. You go figure that. Never run more than 40 metres for two or three months. If you can't run fast, you won't run fast. Exactly. You can't endure what you don't have. And that, and that was just, that cooled them because we took a different angle and got a different result. Unfortunately, not too many people take that path. The majority of people take high volume and win, win very little of the time and say, there you go, it proves we're right. Um, what about the, the multi-sport athlete that, you know, for example, what? plays basketball and, and is doing a ton of short speed, a lactate short speed training, essentially, and they're coming out and sitting in front of me in the spring and saying, Coach, I want to win... I want to win a state championship, at, you know, in the 400 meter. And there's some direct crossover there. That's great. And that same athlete turns around and says, um, "I've been doing all this short speed a-lactate training, and I want to win the high jump because they're a basketball player. They think they're immediately going to be able to jump through the high jump and coordinating the, you know, the, 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 that multi-sport in one given calendar year. That's that's a big that's a big puzzle." It, it is a challenge, but what I like about that is that they're getting in diversity. And that's the one thing we've taken away from young athletes. We've taken the diversity way too early. And that's something that you know, this man, Bali, and, and, and others have worked hard to reintroduce. Unfortunately, you know, 20 years after he started writing about long-term athletic development, it became, it's become a catchword and a buzzword. Everyone, LATD, man, we're into LATD. And these people don't even know what they're talking about. So I don't want to actually convince that we're going to return to, to any sort of um, common sense in terms of diversity in, in sport at the younger ages. So when I hear a multi-sport athlete, I'm pretty, pretty excited. So I'll take that challenge on any day for, for them having the opportunity to, to, to play any sport they want. But you obviously have to be smart about it because they're going hard all year round, and et cetera, et cetera. On the 400-metre one, I still 400-metre, it depends upon the individual, but I still 400-metre is one of those ones where you can go out hard and hang on sort of thing. So I actually think coming from the power end of it is there's a lot of upside in that, but it really depends upon the individual qualities of the athlete. So it depends on what they come to the table with genetically, sure. etc. Because some of them who do high volume work will kill them, and others actually need to do a little bit of higher, higher distances. Now I love the multi-sport athlete. I think um, Bono's. Remember Bono's? No, most people too too young remember Bono's. Bo Jackson. Uh, baseball and football. Now, since then, I'm sure there's been others. No. Well, Deion Sanders. Sanders. He was no Bo Jackson. Uh, <laughs> Bo's the only guy to make the All-Star team, baseball and All-Pro. Yeah. And Sanders did play for 14 years in the league. And the sample size is too small, but he 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 paid the price from an injury perspective. But that does, you know, on a sample of one, you can't come to any conclusions on that. Yeah. But no, it's um. It's always good to see, and uh, we've had an, an example in Australia recently where an athlete has confirmed elite level in three different codes. First person, I believe, you know, I could be wrong, but first person I know to compete in, in um, rugby league, Australian rules football, rugby union at, at, at the provincial or state and national level. So it's, um, it's good to watch. What's your... Uh I guess, a strategy for um, a sport like, you know, mountain biking. It's got a long season. 
you know, races here and there, not a lot that they can throw off just as far as like, there's a the concept of peaking, I hate to throw that out there because I know it's a, uh, a, you know, ambiguous term that can mean a lot of bad things, but uh, I guess just kind of what, what's your basic approach for like keeping an athlete, you know, fit during that long grueling of a, of a season? I don't typically answer uh, in terms of a year long. I know obviously we can't go into at this level, but I, I typically would look at it um, a bit longer cycle than that, in terms of you know, minimum four, if not you know, longer. And, and then when you can see that, then you can help them understand where we prioritise this and we prioritise that. Because at the end of the day, the answer comes around prioritising. If you just do one type of training all around, you actually won't improve too much. Right, yeah. But if you know how to skillfully um, transition from priority to priority to priority, so basically the amount of general training will be higher in the early years and, and reduced. Um, the amount of training may go up or down over the years, but you, you've got to see a pattern over the years, and that requires first of all recording. Now I've got a young athlete who um, I started with about the age of 14, probably one of the youngest athletes I've worked in a professional sense with because he does train as a professional would, and it's pretty unique to, to get someone at that age group. And he'd have um, you know, two and a half years now of, of recordings every single transition. And we were sitting down there and we started to create a table comparing um, number of sport-specific sessions in the DPP over, over a three-year pattern. So we had two, and we were creating a third. We were able to use the first two to shape the third. Understand? Yeah. So the ratio of specific to non-specific in the general preparatory phase, it started out really, really low in, in sport-specific activity, and we're just allowing it to creep up through the general preparatory phase. So for me, if the sport's irrelevant, the, the, how often you train is irrelevant, it's, it's your ability to skillfully prioritise to allow different qualities to have the lights on on them, to, to, to allow and others to rest. Okay. And so it's that lack, it's that unilateral thinking, let's just bang this one thing all year round. So that's where the art of planning comes in. And There's always a lot of talk about planning, a lot of workshops and planning, but I don't mean to, don't matter too many people can actually can show me... Um, multi-year records of an athlete that reflect the training model that they used. So I don't, I'm not suggesting you be theoretical about this, I'm suggesting you be real and practical about this. Because even though people think you've got to be expected to write a plan 10 years in advance, that's not, you've got to have a structural model in advance. But as you see it unfold, it shapes your future direction, because then you can say, okay, we've done this, we've done this, and this over the last few years, and this is happening. I like it, let's generally move in that direction. So we don't need to know, we just need to have a plan. Back to multi-sport athletes, is there an age that you feel is appropriate to start focusing on one sport? Yes. Yeah. Um, it comes down to two things. Mm-hmm. The age of, of specialisation or the age of peaking in the sport is number one, mm-hmm. and the point at which they want to cut down their options. Sounds good. Yeah. There are other factors like you know, what they bring to the table. If they started it early, how many years have they been at it? More likely they do do it a bit early, I think. There are a lot of advantages to be brought by the diversity in the early ages that if you shut it down too early, you, you might pay the price for it. Right. Everyone panics. You know, emotionally, they're panicking. Oh, geez, I better do it before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest thing... they're falling behind Exactly. nine years old. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. And the biggest something block is probably uh, pathways as far as... Talent identification, especially say in a country like Australia, which is government funded, or where there aren't too many professional teams, they feel that if they're not shining at the age of this age, that they won't get in the channel. Right. 
I actually find that the athletes that stay out of the system typically have a greater chance of coming through. Because I, 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 I believe that athletes, especially in Australia, if your talent identified as a teenager, you'll have surgery by the time you're 16 and you'll be retired from ill health by the time you're 20. So that's the, that's the benefit of being a talented identified athlete in, in the programs that we offer in our country. So I actually like them to stay out of the system if they can. And I take great delight in working with athletes outside the system because we can control the outcome instead of being told. Mm-hmm. What about speed, strength uh, versus mass? Versus max strength. In, in, in training uh, in the gym or outside of the gym? Um, I guess it would be for your sport, but outside, I guess outside of the sport, in the gym. Okay. So it comes down to whether you think the athlete's transfer comes from being stronger or from doing high-speed movement. So that's, that's the, basic, the, basic, the simplest way I can put it. And I've got to say that there's a, a pretty big um, push in certain circles to say, well, the more you lift, the better off you'll be. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I, I'm a fairly big fan of maximal strength, but not to the extent or the volumes or the hypertrophy that many get engaged in. But you do need to individualise that because some people come to the table with certain qualities that need to be supplemented and and others come with a lacking there that need to be addressed. I'll give an example. If you had to do, uh, let's say uh, you're testing your competition with how many push-ups can you do, just use a simple example. The question is, are we we going to improve our maximum number of push-ups by doing more push-ups or by doing some, say, bench press with a higher load? And I'm not saying or a combination of both. That's, that's a pretty simplistic example. So traditionally, athletes would just do push-ups. I, I was a, in my teens, I used to do push-ups every night before I went to bed. And I could do well in excess of you know, so many numbers, no problem. But I don't know how much I was improving. I could do, I could do a lot of numbers, but I don't know about improving. And then, you know, obviously, at a later teens, early in the 20s, you know, I became exposed to more hyperloading and bench. And I can see the benefits. And the same with the cyclist. Um, you know, a cyclist can go up some hills, do some hill training, and then maybe they can get the same benefit in a much shorter time of doing some, some strength training. But the, what's happened is people have gone overboard with it. You know, at the end of the day, we can't allow strength training to replace all our needs. Having said that, there's much, for example, in boxing, oh, you know, the heavy bench pressing will slow me down. So th- there's a lot of discussion to be had there about how you're benching and how, how often, etc. If your connective tissue does increase its tension or get shorter, a good chance it could slow you down. But that's not just the fact that you're benching, that's the fact that you're not stretching and not countering it. So there's a few variables there. And I haven't answered your question directly, but... Yeah, I was thinking about the boxing side where if you're doing tempo training or tempo benching, if you're doing it slow and then the person does that for several weeks, yes. but they're not doing any yes. maybe speed, yes, so, so shot of boxing to get the muscles. If you have a look at... If you have a look at my writing, especially right back to the how to write strength training programs in 1998, and I said, I showed how much percentage of time that an athlete should be doing anything less than, than, than explosive lifts. And it's a very, very short period of time. And the slow speed training should only be used for rehabilitation and learning for an athlete. If you're, if you're a bodybuilder just after hypertrophy, maybe a bit more. But for an athlete, slow speed training shouldn't be used that much. And that was another overreaction. Because when it was popularised... When slow speed training is popwise, it was it was overdone. People were overdoing it. So I think that's a very good point. There's a time and a place. You don't want to spend too long there. And that's why, for example, in a squat, I would spend less of my time 
using a pause and a squat than I do in a pause in an upper body movement because I believe the stretch shortening cycle is more valid, more relevant, more applicable in lower body training than in upper body training in most sports. I'm just going out in the limb there, but um, would you, in that sense, would you recommend, like obviously, if, um, if you do a particular limb, supplementing that, you know, at the same token, do not plan if you exercise, like if you're going to, like for instance, the bench press. Excellent. Good question. Aside of boxing and striking sports, I believe that the stretch opening role in upper body has been overrated. So I believe that too many people, too many athletes are being exposed to plummet to train upper body that's really irrelevant to them. But if we were to do work directly with striking sport athletes, then my first question before engaging in that would be how are you executing a lift? Because I think there's enough empirical and other evidence to suggest that in the concentric phase in particular, if you're not really focusing on explosiveness, if you're not really focusing or trying to go hard, then you might not get the speed transfer. So that if you're going, um, uh, what, what's my shopping list? Oh, I nearly finished it. Oh, now I've finished the concentric phase. You might need more of the, the plummetic speed work. But I, but I think if, you're, if your training is really focused, no matter what the load is, no matter how fast it actually goes, really focused on on, the, on the, the rate of force development, I think you cover a lot of those bases. I also think there's a place for a back offset for an athlete. Well, it's called basically contrast training, where you go up to a high load, and then when you come back to a low load, you can really, really blow it out. So it's for me, and I've said this you know, since 1998, and how to write the need for speed. You probably read about in other people's publications without reference the need for speed. Um, for the majority of time, an, uh, an explosive sport athlete needs to focus on how fast they lift. Not necessarily how fast it looks, but focus on how fast they attempt to lift. And that's a, a very clear quote. When I, when, I got into the, oh, when I got into the endurance sports, the triathlon, so there was this huge trend. I had um, you know, adult runners typically that considered themselves well-read that just crossed their eyes and practically, you know, fainted when I, when, I, when I suggested overhead training. None of the endurance athletes wanted to do any sort anything but horizontal runner's plane uh, of, of, of movement. Um, and um, I really enjoyed reading about, you know, your, your different vertices or, ver you know, vertical push, vertical pull, you know, horizontal push, horizontal pull. In fact, what got me, what kept me reading was instinctively, I knew as a young kid, Everyone and their sister was bench pressing, and the alternate movement was a was a pull up, and and I got, almost got kicked out of my high school weights class because I asked, how is this the opposite of bench pressing? Wow. We're laying down, and now you want me to stand up and pull, and so so anyway, point point being like, um, what about the upper body movement relative to speed? Either whether whether it's hundred meter sprinting or rugby. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sprinting. That's a really good question. Really good question. I can relate to what you're saying because when I suggested, and I can never forget, I did a seminar in New York City in the late 90s and I said to them, bench press, chin up, where's that opposite? Um, because the guru in New York City at that time we had written all these programs with that combo, um, it, life got pretty ugly for me in America for a while. So like, you know, I probably had up to 75% attendees pull out of the seminars for the next 12 months. 
Um, they arranged for police to call out of state, out of jurisdiction, and illegally, threatening people that they were going to get arrested for non-specific things that weren't even offences. Uh, I went to a seminar, I went to a convention once, and the bloke went, went all white, and I said, what's wrong? He said, Ian, I thought you were in jail. Um, because I said things like that, so I can relate to that. Um, but coming back to your, your question, you know the interesting thing is, do you know how unpopular a bench pitch is at the moment? It's very it's Like, stupid. what the... What's that all about? It's the old baby with the bathwater. Exactly. I can't believe it. Yeah. Like, oh my God, you can't do a bench race. You're not on your feet. It's not multi-plane. It's not functional. You haven't got a cup of coffee in your hand or a stick up your ass. I'm not sure. You're pushing something up. You already screwed up. Exactly. I just, you know, it just goes, maybe it's the fluoride in the water. I don't know. No, it's, yeah. That's actually, that's funny. It's a lot of the, the bodybuilding stuff, like you know, the curls and tricep isolation stuff and bench press. I mean, it's like you, you just don't see those things in, in quote unquote functional training anymore. And I is is about you know a couple of years ago I realized like man I'm I'm actually doing myself a disservice by not doing some bicep curls and doing but some exactly. bicep press. Exactly. The whole concept of moving from isolated to compound completely thrown out. Completely thrown. Out. I was listening to this audio transcript by this this absolute dickhead. Um, <laughs> Where he was mocking people for doing isolated exercises. I mean, which planet are they from? I do enjoy when I'm talking to old age bodybuilders. I did an interview recently with um, um, Shelby, Shelby, and Shelby Barnes, and um, and we were talking about this. And we said, "Listen, what's wrong with all these people? Like, where can you find a leg extension, a leg curl machine now?" <laughs> so we're on the same page. That so bench press. Is really good exercise. It's a phenomenal exercise. You know, uh, uh, because I talked about horizontal push, you know, horizontal pushing and pulling, and, 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 and brought that to the light. The overreactions. I'm embarrassed about the number of overreactions that I've contributed to, but I actually didn't do them. I just can't control human nature and overreacting. In fact, the concept of overreacting and underreacting is a, is a concept that I brought to the industry from the futurist industry from my reading of futurism. And even that was hijacked by a certain person who, who blatantly uh, claimed it in, in a transcript and audio. I mean, you know, the world has no shame. So, bench press is like, I can't say, like, it's a phenomenal size and it makes some significant difference in so many different sports. Well, would you agree that there are people that shouldn't do it in, yeah. with a barbell? I mean, uh, there are people that should be parents too. True, true. Because <laughs> I have athletes that, that, that high school, like high school football players, who come in so incredibly, you know, internally rotating, yeah. protracted. Yeah, the last thing that yeah. I, you know, they, exactly. they need to spend about five years away before, before they do that. Only if they do all the work in between. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. But the, the, the reason why America can't press behind the neck and can't back squat. Is because of the bench press. But does that make the bench press bad or deserve to be thrown out? I mean, it's so dumb. It's so black and white. It's, it's like, it's like you can grow a brain. Think about it. If the problem is caused by your abuse of, the, of, of bench or your absence of doing something else or your absence of stretching, don't blame the bench press. You know, exactly. It's, you know my writings. Yeah, it's exactly. It's innate. It's, so I, I'm a big fan of the bench press. The fact that. It's, it's one of the greatest imbalances in the world of strength training, along with the quads. It's not the bench press's fault. So, 
if you remember Charlie Francis talking about Ben Benching before, you know, you know, like the Eastern Germans, oh my God, look at that. You know, I think he, he, he benched something like 177 um, accidentally in the lead up to, I don't know, somewhere. But, you know, in that plane, in the running plane, you asked me about the bench press in the running plane, phenomenal. Phenomenal contribution. And what, a, you know, it's one of those things where it, it's time of feeling. It's a good waist size. What about eccentric lifting? When you max it out, I would say most of the load is slowing it down rather than getting the explosion. Yep. The, the pros and cons of this, if you don't do overload eccentric work, you're probably maximising your strength. But in some sports, it's not about maximising your strength. It's about the transfer. So if I'm a, a strength sport athlete, I definitely need to do some, some overload eccentric work, without a doubt. But if I'm involved in a sport that does not have a eccentric contraction, and there's a few of them, then I wouldn't be putting too much of my total time and attention in the eccentric phase. If you understand where I'm going with that, and I have to chuckle on that one. There's a lot of sports that have eccentric, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Eccentric phase. So There's a lot of sports. No one thinks about that, but yeah. And you have to question that. And I'm not saying for everybody it should never be done because that's a challenge when talking to many audiences these days. They're all oh, good. You said it's, it's got challenges and we better not do it. Everybody should not do it. But yeah. So it, it's, it's like everything. There's value in everything. You've just got to have the wisdom to know when to apply it. You know, Wallace Waddle said in The Science of Getting Rich, thinking is the hardest thing a man will do. Man being a generic term for a human being. About barefoot training, you know, tree training. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I'm not laughing. It's a really good question because it's very pertinent at the moment. Let's get this real clear. I was born in a country with no shoes. My biggest concern when I went on my first overseas tour, real big trip to Australia, to Cairns from Port Moresby, real big trip. Um, it, was a, it was a Papua New Guinean uh, primary school rugby league team. Our biggest concern was, do they wear shoes? So we scrambled, we made a phone call in Australia, do your boys wear shoes? Fortunately, we were talking to North Queenslanders and they didn't wear shoes either. I was brought up not wearing shoes. And when I hear all this interesting talk about the barefoot, can I ask you a question? Do you mean barefoot no shoe or barefoot with a special shoe that's like a no foot? Um, I guess kind of both. I mean, like, I, I, I guess like, uh, as far as training, like, I guess more towards minimalist shoe training, like just a, a shoe that allows more natural barefoot type movement. Which leads me to my next question, but I am going to come back on a few things. Why do you think that trend arose? Well, because the shoes were going too far in the other direction. And, uh, is, there another, and is there another possibility? The shoe companies were developing the other Let's just... Just be a little bit cynical for a moment and think, well, if I needed to expand in a new range and I developed a new trend, I could sell a new product for the trend. Yeah. Well, and again, like I, you know, um, in the book Born to Run, I forget exactly what the scenario was, but the one of the observations made was that they were given their, you know, these shoes to the University of Oregon running team, and then they're going out and watching them, and, and half the time they're not wearing them. They're like running you know, doing some runs on the infield on the grass, you know, barefoot. So, you know, it seems to me that the barefoot, the minimalist shoe barefoot trend was almost something that gained momentum and then the industry 
noticed it and decided that it could cash in on it rather than necessarily... Maybe. I, I, I can't comment, but I can say this. I, mean, I definitely know there's industry... I, I definitely agree that there's industry forces and some industry benefits. popularization okay. of it. But do you, I guess my question is, do you personally recommend that your athletes try to uh, use, if not train barefoot, at least use shoes that allow their foot to move as naturally as possible? Okay. There are some really basic questions that you ask to answer that question. It is so simple I'm embarrassed. What is the full way that the sport competing? It just depends on how most sports require some some sort of shoes. Is there, a, is there some potential to have an adaptation to their footwear? There is, yes. It could be positive and negative. Okay, well, we'll move on to the next one. I'm born in Kenya. Never seen a pair of shoes. Run normal life without shoes. Fantastic. I'm born in New York. Concrete city. Worn shoes all my life. Turn up at a training session with a trainer that's got a new fan. Right, yeah, yep, yep. Have you ever heard a story from a young boy saying, you know, I went to training and you wanted me to train out my shoes on, but, jeez, my, my shins are sore and my calves sore. You ever had that response? Well, I don't care whether you have your shoes on, your shoes off. I don't care whether you wear your underpants under your pants or your underpants outside your pants. But I want to know, if you don't live your life barefoot and suddenly you turn up to training and some wanker coach asks you to take your shoes off and get loaded without your shoes on and you come to me with a stress fracture, like, get a life. Yeah, 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 no, I totally agree with that and that's where I guess like the overreaction thing would be but like if you have, like, I guess like my overall question is, is, you know, you get an athlete that, you know, has worn these big heavy shoes, like they can't get their toes to open up, they have no control of their feet. Do you try to get if you, them if, to start If you thought that that was important and you were willing to allow the progressive change, because you'd have to have, if you, if you had a shoe t- a density that was five levels off where you want to be, you'd have to go this level, this level, this level, without we have any chance of being injury free. You've got a big challenge on your hands. So I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying if you're going to transition, be aware of the implications. But all, so, things, all things being equal, though, you would. I tell you what, Lean towards letting the body move as naturally as possible. Um, yes and no. If I'm on an island with no pollution, no broken glass, I'm happy to run barefoot. But if I'm living in the Western world, which is polluted, then I'm not too sure. So look, we've got to add a degree of realism to that. Mitchell, you've got something to say. I know yeah. you've got something to say. Just, just two points. Firstly, um, if, if there is a foot issue, etc., there's other ways to address it. I mean, you should. Do you understand that? Is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mobility. Uh, I don't massage, know how mobility, but yeah, <laughs> flexibility. Sorry, it's not. yeah. There's, there's a number of different areas, not without being specific, but areas. But secondly, you sit there and you say, oh, I know, I know, but I know, I know, I know, but I know, I know, I know, but I'm not sure you know, and that's okay. But I'm not sure if you're picking up the message that Ian's giving you. Perhaps re-watching his huddle again would serve you in, in, in seeing the underlying message there. Just some guidance and some communication there. Well, fantastic question. It's really relevant. I love the question because I'm dealing with the outcomes. Um, and it's quite funny for me because I was brought up without shoes. And I, I love it. 
But you've got to be in context. I mean, from a spiritual perspective, the closest we are to the ground, fantastic. It, it makes a big difference. But under the circumstance of the individual, that's the only way we can answer the question. So again, I, you know, I say it depends. But great question. It's really a, a trend that needs to be questioned because there's a few people paying the price for it out there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Oh, both ways. You know, both ways, from being overshoot to being undershoot. You know, there's, there's quite a few price to be paid. And then, and then, do you know how many people have been inserted with orthotics in their life? Yeah. Yeah, you know, what I'm saying, so you, at the end of the day, we've got to make sure it's in the best interest of the individual. Fantastic question. Okay, it would appear that um, we've exhausted our questions because when we shut down this, we're shutting down for the day. I have uh, one question. This is kind of going back to we were uh, talking about the bench press for uh, for just like running sports, like a track athlete. Um, you know, for someone like myself who doesn't have years of experience uh, working in the industry, how do you do the best determine what upper body exercises will assist the transfer Fantastic. Fantastic. sport? Two ways. Number one, learn by doing. The greatest challenge of that, and the reason why it's rarely done, is because you'd have to disregard everything everybody told you. Now, there's some phenomenal quotes that have been inserted in quite a few of my books by some of the greatest thinkers in modern history of the Western society that say, I, I, I jettisoned everything I was, I was led to believe and thought only on the basis of personal experience. So you can, over the next 12 months, over the next two years, you can form your own opinions. You hypothesise, you test it, you hypothesise, you test it, you do it objectively. You would make you a one percenter. It would make you one percent of the market because ninety-nine percent of the market has got no intent, no desire, and will never do that. They'll just go to the latest convention, read the latest trending book, and do exactly what everyone else is doing. And they will never do anything more than what everyone else is doing. Ninety-five percent of the population will only ever do what everyone else is doing. So uh, you might lack experience, but I tell you, it won't, won't take you time to catch up. The second source, you're in, you're in a place like this, where you're getting some input, some guidance on on reaching a conclusion a bit quicker. So whilst we're not telling the answers, we're helping you accelerate your conclusions. Whether or not this is helpful or not, I know that for me, um, I had plantar fasciitis in high school. And I was always told, you know, back to the shoe thing, you know, get this kind of orthotics or this kind of shoes. And so, I mean, all through high school, college, when I played, it's always, or they were telling me, you know, um, surgery or you know you have to do this or that but so on my own you know I did the whole shoe sh um, shoe research you know what kind of insoles I should get or you know that kind of thing and it, it's kind of weird that I did it on both of my feet and just doing and then I saw this website that talked about oh you know like a freezer can Oh, you know, or whatever, juice, or you know, kind of hold your feet under it and do the tennis ball thing. So I just come to come to find out that just doing those stretches in itself, to where that now, like completely, I have no pain whatsoever in my right foot. And there's the pain. I still have a little pain in my left foot, but it's subsided substantially. And I just found that sometimes it's not even the shoes. Exactly. You know, it's just. I mean. And what, what, no, no, just my experience. what we see people solving the problem with technology, 
the problems in training are caused by the way you train for the most part. Not every one of them, but for the most part. Therefore, the solution is in your training. The solution is not in adding another external factor, generally speaking. You mentioned that technology is there to solve the problem, but they're, they're just treating the symptom, is what I see. Well, well my, most therapy approaches treat the symptom in, in, in physical and otherwise. In technology, would you say that would be similar? Definitely, but with an added twist that the commercial benefit is the overriding motive, where I think um, that's not necessarily the case with, with therapy per se, but they're still treating the symptom, not down the line course. If you try and solve a problem that's caused by training, by any other source than understanding your training, uh, it's like I'm the physical preparation coach, and if I'm creating the training program, and then I send you off to get yourself fixed by an external party, like a physiotherapist, like, well, what's going on here? It, 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 you'll do some non-specific stuff, and great, might get a solution, come back in, and back to the problem. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't solve problems by returning to the same environment that caused the problem. And my attitude towards physical preparation coaches, if you have a single injury in your program, then you have, need to have a good eye look at what's going on. It's not a criticism, I'm just saying you need to review it. And yet I see people happy to have multiple multiple knees, multiple shoulders, multiple everything every year. Well, that's, even, that's a great treasure. I mean, we had that yesterday. We were up there with a group of athletes, and one of the athletes was, that was basically, you know, it was a badge of honour. And they're too young to understand the implications of that. But I have a question. How much, how much do you, as a, as a strength, you know, as a physical preparation coach, how much do we have to know? How much really, you know, there's the lifelong pursuit of, of, of knowledge, I find myself, I feel like like there's so much to learn, and having the KSI, I, I consider it, I visualize it sort of as a funnel, mm-hmm. there's just so much, but there's this, like, there's just a, there's a funnel that comes down, yet I do bump, run into to these industry uh, specialists. Who generally know, they're, 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 you know, they're who, who contribute in one way or another. Uh, I have a chiropractor that, that I, I really believe in. He's personally helped me out substantially. He's helped me, he's made great gains. And there's a, a, a liability, legal limit to how much manipulation or how much just, you know, what I can do with, with, with an athlete. So how much do we have to know? The less. The least information for the most outcome. Because most people focus on how much information they have. My recommendation is to, similar to my training approach, is to work out the littlest information you need for the best results. So let's say from an injury perspective, your team have six, six game missing injuries this year, six game losses this year in terms of bodies out of the game and next year they have four you're making progress so it's not difficult it's not about information it's about being very clear about your objectives and not getting distracted very few people will achieve this because they're getting drawn by so many influences so I face the same challenge that you just raised and I'd spend every minute of my waking day reading 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 and then I realised that the answers are in the body and if I learn and improve my ability to understand the body and to read the response to training, then I didn't need to know too much. So I don't know too much. I just know how to read the body's response to training. 
and I take that as a preventative, like I take that hypothesis or the outcome and I say I'm going to use that outcome to prevent that in someone else. So I actually think you don't need to know that much. You just need to have an efficient approach to information. And if you don't, your head will be swimming. You know, I believe that most people are incompetent in this industry, but they know a lot more than me. Knowledge being defined by, you know, textbooks and references and the size of my library, whatever it is. That's a great question, because I certainly struggle with that personally. Well, what made you feel inferior because you don't have the alphabet behind your name? Exactly. 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 Yeah. And the world will continue in that direction. Like, if in 10 years' time I couldn't get a job with a, this one, he was, I don't have a PhD. You know, that's, exactly. the, that's the truth of the world. But you know what I need to have to, to advance my knowledge of training somebody? One body. Because one body will teach me much more than any, any textbook or any, anything else, whatever. Well. You know, if you. It's a way of thinking that accelerates your learning, not an amount of information. So. I understand, I have complete empathy from what you're saying. I've been down that path. But at a point in time, I redirected my energies and I feel a lot more comfortable about that and I teach that. And I think a few of my leading coaches could reinforce what I'm talking about. Mitchell, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, th- there's so much pressure from a society perspective for your accreditation, for you to know this, for you to know that, whatever it happens to be. And if you... If you bow to that, or if you're conditioned or influenced by that, you're screwed. Like, like seriously, you're absolutely screwed. You'll have a lot of friends, and you'll have a job. But you might not be too competent. Yeah. You, you, like, but if you want to create true demand for your services, and truly serve people, Jim Rowan says, you know, how do you become great? Service to many leads to greatness. So if you want to become great at something, serve them. And the best way to serve them is to truly learn to read the body, and you are not going to learn that from someone being paid sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year at a university teaching something that they may not even believe in. It's just a course curriculum, and you're not going to get it at the latest convention you go to or the latest accreditation that you receive. You will not receive anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely adamant about that. Um, until you have, and you'll know when you're on the right path. And we never know everything, right? We're always learning. But I think people dip from too many buckets as well, you know, fingers in too many, oh, I'm just, I'm learning from this, 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 nah, you're not, you don't, you need to master some approach, and then with the thoughts, learning how to think rather than what to think, you, you, you understand, here, we're not teaching you, we're not saying you must do this, you must do that, you must do that, not at all, we're giving you perspective, when you learn to think for yourself, come to your conclusions based on your own experiences, which is the body that you've got in front of you, it becomes a much easier task physically and emotionally and before we go to Mike, on the service to many, <coughs> I talk about how many athletes I've, I've trained, and not in numbers, and I don't write about that. Like, you'll never see me write, you know, I've trained X number of athletes. Well, I just say about, you know, X number of sports. It's the so, first question I get asked when I, when I mention your name. Well, who is he? Who's he trained? And yeah. So, I don't know. Me. Yeah, good, because I, I don't tell you But in this environment, we've serviced so many people over the years, and that's how we learn. We service so many people. Uh, in a week like this, in a five-day environment that we're in at the moment, we would typically process, on, a, on average, about 50 athletes in a five-day period, and that's just this this week. Um, 
and I, like I don't even remember half the people I've trained because it's not it's irrelevant. Like it's you know it's it's their life, it's their credit, or, or otherwise. I mean, you know, you, people recite to me stories that I don't even remember because you can really, uh, if you go out there to help as many people as possible with a genuine intent, then it's just a valuable experience for you. So I think there's a lot to be said by, um, as you said, uh, the service to many concepts. Michael. Again, I can sympathise where you're coming from because uh, I was a product of that, having gone to a, having gone through formal education for that purpose, and then again working in an academic institution, working with with a lot of athletes, um, and what the expectations are within that culture. Right? right. Oftentimes we judge ourselves through a cultural eye or a society's eye. Does that make sense? Um, and we lose ourselves when we do that. So. For you to focus on the person in front of you, um, and because of Ian, because of Mitchell, because of, of what we've learned together as a group, I've been able to focus probably and learn more um, in the last 15 years than I did in every year prior. Does that make sense? Because I, I actually started to focus more on who was in front of me, um, what was what were they saying, and not just reading the body, but reading them meeting them, I'm going to say it loosely, reading their minds. Holistic approach. Exactly, that holistic approach. Because we look for cause and effect relationships, and that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. But what happens when you're looking for those cause and effect relationships is you, you're looking for, for one thing to give you one result. But often that's not the, that's not the case at all. Does that make sense? Ian talked about a training environment. What's in the training environment? What's, what's, con what's contributing to that? And how much of that can you pick up, okay, as, as a practitioner, as a person who's helping another person, okay, affect that and then get a result of that? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And in today's society, we're always looking for that one-to-one. -one. If I do this, then this happens and it's a guarantee and it's all done. And books are written about it. Do you know what I mean? How to, how to, um, how to hack certain things, right, and fast-track it. There's no fast track to, to developing skill in reading a person. It, it only happens with the application of, I've done it with this person, I've done it with this person, and I've seen a, I've seen a result with it, I've seen a pattern occur because of it, um, and that draws me to these conclusions. But I don't hold on to those conclusions um, in a concrete manner because I know everyone's an individual and it has, there's an opportunity there for it to morph because there are so many other variables that contribute to that, what's happening. It's much like a Dallas discussion, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Any final? So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to discuss again in another case I hold. <laughs>